Jesus' name, amen. All right, good morning. It's good to be with you guys. Um, did want to kind of add a little bit more context. Doug Hanna, who you just got introduced there to on the screen, he's not, uh, he's new in his role, but he's actually been an elder at Pillar DC for the last couple of years um, and has actually been part-time on staff, and he's going to be transitioning into that full-time role and stepping in as the primary teaching pastor. And so uh, he's not, uh, you know, an outside hire, so to speak, but we're, you know, focused on continuing to raise up uh, uh, godly men who can help lead the church from within, and, and Doug is another example of that. Uh, we're really thankful for him. Um, so as Clint shared, we're going to be uh, leaving in July to head to Texas to start Pillar Church of San Antonio. Uh, and it's going to be a, a sort of a homecoming for, for me. I'm actually originally from Texas, uh, from the Houston area. Um, and I was born and raised there. I spent six years in the Army and so bounced around after uh, I graduated high school uh, during my military career and then uh, actually gave my life to Christ towards the end of my time in the Army. And it was pretty radical turnaround for me. Uh, pretty shortly after that, I knew God had called me to preach the gospel. It's what I wanted to do. There was nothing else I wanted to do with my life. And uh, so I told God, I'll go anywhere, do anything, and give up anything you call me to for the rest of my life. And uh, that, uh, after Jen and I got married, that led to us, as Clint said, moving to Canada, where we lived for about four and a half years, uh, planted a church uh, in the Toronto area. And then I... Uh, in 2018, I actually met Colby at a conference in Iowa, of all places. Um, it was kind of random. Uh, and we met, and he shared with me about the Praetorian Project, and I really just loved the vision. Uh, I, ha I had a heart for the military because I was in the military. I knew there, I knew there was great need uh, in the military and also a lot of opportunity. And I loved what the project was doing. And so Colby and I, uh, you know, kept in touch. Uh, Jen, I had told him that, you know, my wife and I, Jen, were praying about potentially coming back to the States, but, uh, you know, we just kind of left it at that. And then uh, the next thing that happened is, is something that I found is kind of a common theme in a lot of people that I, that I meet where they'll say something along the lines of, well, I got, one day I just got a call from Clint Clifton and everything in my life changed. Uh, so for those of you that know Clint, you, you know what I'm talking about. And so literally out of the blue, Clint called me uh, in like, early 2019 and said, hey man, I want you to pray about this opportunity in D.C., and it just became clear to my wife and I that that's where God was leading us. And God has been very good uh, over the past two and a half years as we've been in D.C. Uh, we've seen a, a healthy church be able to be established. Like Clint said, we've got a, a facility. All that is great. But I think we're most excited to be able to multiply early on as a church. It's something that we wanted to do. We actually, uh, we, we like to joke about this now, but um, if you couldn't tell from my bio, I tend to kind of, like Clint and Colby, make decisions that outside observers might consider insane or crazy, like adopting three children at once or, you know, moving to other countries and planting churches. Um, and we made the audacious goal that we were going to plant our first church by September 2020 at Pillar D.C., we launched in September 2019. Uh, we did not have a church planter. <laughs> we, we didn't know where one was going to come from. And, you know, COVID hit, and that obviously didn't happen. But we're, you know, it's not 2020, it's 2022, but we're really excited uh, to be multiplying as a church. Uh, and we're, uh, for those that don't know about San Antonio, it's uh, actually nicknamed Military City USA. There's three military installations in San Antonio, uh, 35,000 active duty uh, military personnel and about 100,000 veterans in the San Antonio area. So just uh, a massive amount of military influence there. 
and there's a huge need because it's a rapidly growing city uh, with a lot of new areas being developed, and we're going to be moving right into one of those areas outside of Lackland Air Force Base. And so we're just incredibly grateful for churches like Pillar Dumfries, like you guys who uh, are selfless, who are willing to partner uh, to see churches planted around the United States and around the world uh, in military communities. So it's a privilege to be here uh, and preach the word this morning. Uh, We're going to be in Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles, I'm going to read the text and then I'm going to pray briefly and then we'll jump in. Mark chapter 8, verses 27 to 38. Here's what God's word says. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. God, I thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would give us now ears to hear what you have to say to us. I pray, Spirit of God, that you would speak through me, that you would uh, just use me in my, in my own weakness, in my frailty, God, and work through a weak vessel like me uh, to, to encourage and to build up your church this morning. And I pray that for anyone who's here this morning who's not born again, who does not know you, Jesus, who does not treasure you as the supreme treasure in their life. I pray that today would be the day of salvation, that scales would fall from their eyes and that they would hear the gospel and believe and be changed forever. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as as Jesus made his way through Caesarea Philippi on his way to Jerusalem, he asked his disciples probably the most important question that's ever been asked. Who do people say that I am? And there were all sorts of opinions about Jesus then, just like there are today. Some thought he was a prophet like Elijah. Some thought he was John the Baptist, come back from the dead. But Jesus asked the all-important question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? 
And Peter responded with a pretty, pretty bold answer. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. And Peter recognized that Jesus had come from God and that he was the fulfillment of God's promise to send the anointed one who would lead God's people. The Jewish people believed that the Messiah would come from God and that he would liberate God's people Israel from the yoke of Roman oppression. And so although Peter's confession was true, what he didn't understand was that the Messiah was not only divine, but that he had come to suffer and die. Jesus came not to liberate Israel from Rome, but to liberate God's people from sin and death by dying and rising in our place. So in verse 31, Jesus began to correct their misconceptions by plainly telling the disciples that he was going to be rejected by the leaders of Israel and ultimately be killed, and then three days later he would rise from the dead. But this did not align with Peter's vision for how he thought things ought to go. Peter expected that as they entered into Jerusalem, there would be a parade, that the troops would be rallied, that Roman soldiers would run terrified as Jesus the Messiah caused lightning bolts to come down on them from heaven, and that there would just be this big, glorious victory with a celebration. Peter could not possibly see how Jesus' suffering and dying could be part of God's plan. So he rebuked Jesus. I mean, think about that. He rebuked Jesus. And, and that word rebuke, it's the same word used for when Jesus would cast out demons. So this wasn't like a calm little powwow. Peter tried to take Jesus to task. He took Jesus aside and basically said, Hey, stop all that negative talk, Jesus. That's enough of that. That's not how God works. That's not God's plan for your life. That's essentially what Peter did. Peter did not have a problem with believing that Jesus was his Savior. Peter's problem was in believing that God's will could entail suffering. Jesus explained to Peter that not only must he as the Messiah suffer and die, but if anyone wants to be his follower, they too must take up their cross. We're the same way. I think probably the majority of the people in this room would say that you believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. The primary challenge or trouble for the church today is not in believing in Jesus' death and resurrection, but in becoming like Jesus in his death and resurrection. We're quick to embrace the Christ who died on the cross, but we're reluctant to embrace the cross of Christ. So this morning, I want us to be confronted by what Jesus has to say, because I think we have the same struggle as Peter, if we're honest with ourselves. We need to understand the true nature of discipleship. The main point of this morning's sermon is that Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. And so we're going to do two things. We're going to look at Jesus' cross, why it's necessary, and what it accomplished. And then we're going to look at the disciples' cross, why it's necessary and what it leads to. So let's talk about Jesus' cross. So in response to Peter's ill-advised rebuke, Jesus turned to the disciples and he rebuked Peter. And he charged him with thinking from a worldly perspective 
rather than God's perspective. He said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, you know, on the surface, Peter's admonition seemed right, even kind of loving, right? God doesn't want you to suffer. It's not God's will for you to have pain. Those things sound nice, don't they? They sound kind. They, they sound compassionate. But Jesus says, he responds in a surprising way. He says, get behind me, Satan. That's some strong words, right? Like, gee, Peter, just, I'm just trying to be nice, Jesus, right? I don't want you to suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. That's, that's not Jesus just being extra harsh. It's because Jesus knows whose voice this is. He sees right through it. It's the same temptation that Satan tried in Luke chapter 4 in the wilderness when Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days. All three times the temptation was essentially serve yourself. You don't need to suffer. Why starve? Just say the word and you can turn this stone into bread. Serve yourself. Why hide your, your true identity and suffer the ridicule of mockers? Just jump off of the temple and God's angels will catch you lest you strike your foot against a stone. You don't have to go through all this rejection. Serve yourself. Why go through the suffering of the cross to be exalted? Just bow down and worship me and all the kingdoms of the earth will be yours. Serve yourself. And Luke 14 tells us that Jesus resisted the devil. And in Luke 4.13, it says that when the devil had finished every temptation, he left him until an opportune time. This was another one of those opportune times. Through an unwitting Peter, Satan was tempting Jesus to have the crown without the cross, to serve himself. He was tempting Jesus to use his power to serve himself rather than sinners. Now, of course, Peter did not consciously know he was doing this he he didn't realize he was tempting Jesus to go against God's will that's why Jesus corrected Peter and said you're thinking about things from a worldly perspective Peter not God's perspective Jesus had not come to serve himself but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many Jesus knew that his death was necessary to create new life he said the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and after three days rise again. Peter did not understand that this was the only way for anyone, including him, to be saved. The only way that sin can be atoned for is through the blood of Jesus. Because we've sinned against a perfectly holy God, our sin debt is infinite. Our transgressions are so egregious that the debt that we owe could never be paid back. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, well, Pastor, I'm not that bad. I haven't done anything that terrible in my life. But can I just say in the gentlest way possible, you are much worse than you think. Every one of us has rebelled against God by tossing aside his rules and refusing to submit to his reign. Every one of us. This just isn't just anyone that you've sinned against. This is the one true God. This is almighty God who gave you life and sustains your very breath. Who's given you the body that you use to transgress his commands on a day-to-day -day basis. You have broken his commands repeatedly. You find pleasure and entertainment in what his soul hates. 
You have spurned him to go and to serve other gods. Friends, your sin is far worse than you could ever imagine. This is why the blood of animals could never remove the guilt of our sin. Our good works can never remove the guilt of our sin. We can't make up for the wrongs that we've done by trying to do a lot of good deeds. We can't undo what's been done. We cannot repay what we owe. Apart from God's grace, we are helpless. We need a Savior. And Jesus is that Savior. He is the substitute sacrifice who died in our place so that we could live. Only the blood of Jesus is precious enough to pay the infinite debt that we owed for our sin. There's no other way for you to be forgiven. There is no other way for you to be saved except by faith in Jesus' death and resurrection. This is what makes the cross of Christ so magnificent, so glorious. On the cross, God's love for sinners was put on full display. Jesus died on the cross to pay the the full debt of sin for all who trust in him. And though your sins are like scarlet, he can make you white as snow. Jesus' death led to his resurrection and his exaltation. He's alive. And by faith in him, we are united to him in his death and resurrection. His death for sin has become our death. If if you've trusted in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sin, then your judgment day happened 2,000 years ago. Your sin has already been punished. God will not bring up your sin again. He's not going to drag it up again. He is not angry with you anymore. All of his anger and wrath that was righteously owed to you has been spent on Christ in your place. And God did all of this not because he was obligated to, but because he's good. Because he's loving, because he's merciful. This is what the cross of Christ has accomplished. Peter couldn't see how the cross could possibly be part of God's will. But without the cross, there would be no resurrection. There would be no glory. There would be no salvation. Have you trusted in Jesus? Are you really trusting in Jesus for your salvation? or, Or are you trusting in yourself? Really ponder that question. Who are you trusting in? What reason will you give when you stand before God today that you ought to be able to enter into his presence? The only right answer is that I plead the blood of Jesus Christ. I invite you to trust in Jesus today, but I need you to know that doing so is going to be costly. Following Jesus is costly if you're The note-taking type, we're on our second point, the disciples' cross. Jesus took the opportunity to explain to the crowd and to his disciples that not only must he suffer, but anyone who wants to follow him must suffer as well. Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. In verse 34, he says, he, he calls the crowd with him, uh, to him with his disciples. So, and I do want to point out, by the way, it's significant that Jesus calls the crowd and addresses the crowd, meaning this is not just for super disciples. This isn't just for extra holy Christians. This applies to all Christians, okay, what he's about to say. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So Jesus said that following him means denying self and taking up your cross. To deny self is to renounce the self as primary. It's to remove the self-will from the throne of your life. And to take up the cross means to submit to Jesus. It means putting him on the throne of your heart in the place of self. Christy Gambrel is an author and she, she points out that the crucifixion was reserved in the Roman Empire for those who had rebelled against authority. And so the symbol, symbol of a criminal carrying their cross to their place of execution was the ultimate symbol of submission. It was like a symbol of this person has been conquered and they are completely submitted to the authority of the Roman government now and to the emperor. So Jesus' call to take up our cross is a call to former rebels to live in complete submission to him. He and his words are now our authority in every facet of life. But get this, here's the difference. Our death march doesn't lead to death, but to life. <laughs> That's amazing. Our death march doesn't lead to death, it leads to life. De denying yourself and taking up your cross isn't about asceticism or, or punishing your body to impress God. The call to take up our cross is a sustained willingness to say no to oneself so that you can say yes to God. It's a sustained willingness to say no to one's self so that you can say yes to God. It's saying no to the fleeting pleasures of sin and yes to greater abiding pleasure in God. Losing our lives for Jesus' sake leads to life. So yes, you can avoid the pain of the cross, but Jesus says you will forfeit your soul. You can cling to your life now, but you will lose it later. There are some of you here in this room who have never taken up your cross. Like Peter in verse 27, you profess faith in Jesus, but you balk at the idea of taking up your cross and suffering with him. And can I just tell you, there is no wide gate or easy path to heaven. Jesus' words in verse 34 and 35 are a call to reorient the entire aim of our lives. That's the call of discipleship. If you live for yourself now, if you store up your treasure on earth, you will perish along with it. If you lose your life now, if you store up treasure in heaven, you will have life and incalculable rewards in heaven for all of eternity. <clears throat> this is um, personal for me, and, I, and I'm very passionate about this because my personal testimony, um, for 24 years, I lived as a nominal Christian. I grew up in a Christian home. I knew all the right answers. I knew all the Bible stories. I made a, a confession of, of Christ as my Savior, just like Peter did here in verse 29. I believe Jesus is the Messiah. I believe, yes, Jesus died on the cross. Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that story. But I did not understand what that entailed. I was willing to acknowledge Jesus as the Messiah who could save me, but I was not interested in suffering with him or for him. And one day, after coming under the conviction of sin, I read these words in Mark 
8.35, verse 35 specifically, where Jesus said, if you cling to your life, you will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you will save it. And I realized I had been clinging to my life. I was trying to remain in control. I, want, I, I was trying to call the shots. I wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I did not want to lay on the altar the things I loved in the world, but I didn't want to go to hell either. I realized that the whole point in following Jesus is believing that, that these things that I've been so unwilling to give up can't give me life in the first place. I don't need them. They're not better than Jesus. And they, in fact, they've actually been keeping me from life because I've been clinging to them instead of the one who can give me life, which is Jesus. So I laid them down and I've never been the same since. I'm still learning how to take up my cross, but I've burned the ships and there's no going back. When I, and I told you earlier, when I surrendered my life to Christ about 12 years ago, I told him, I'll go anywhere, I'll do anything, and I'll give up anything you call me to for the rest of my life. I didn't even fully understand what that meant or what that entailed at the time. All I knew is that Jesus was calling me to trust him with everything. My calendar, my career, my relationships, my future. I, was I had to be willing to let him take whatever he wanted. And it was only then that I could actually have real life. Is that you? Does this resonate with anybody this morning? Are you there? Let me just urge you to lay it down. Stop clinging to your life. One of the things that God has been, you know, sometimes I'll just, uh, you know, I hear people talk about my story and it just doesn't make sense to me because uh, I know how broken I am. I know how, how weak I am. I, I know how great of a sinner I am and how undeserving I am of anything good that God has done in my life. Anything good that God has done in me is completely by His grace. You know the only reason I'm standing here before you today is that uh, what I was just reading the other day is that, is that God's heavy, gracious hand was upon me, making me miserable in the conviction of my sin until I repented and turned to Him. I'm so grateful that God made me so miserable that I couldn't keep sinning anymore, that I had to repent and turn to Him. Man. If God's doing that in you, don't keep putting it off. One of the things I realized is that I'd been calling the shots in my life for 24 years and it had kept on leading to the exact same result. I was making a mess of my life. And if you keep going down the road, the same thing is going to keep happening. Why keep trying to, to cling to control of your life when you're going to keep getting the same results? Isn't that the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing over and over and expecting a different result? I just want to urge you, if that's you this morning, trust in Christ, surrender it into his hands, and don't put it off any longer. And for those of you who, who have trusted in Jesus, who have determined not to cling to your life, we still face the daily decision to take up our cross and follow Jesus. It's not a one-time thing. It's a daily decision. And following Jesus is often hard because living like Jesus is contrary to our flesh, right? Think about it. I mean, doing, doing Jesus-like things means that we will be inconvenienced and uncomfortable. Jesus made time for the sick, for the poor, for little children. He preached the gospel in the face of fierce opposition. He tirelessly served other people. Our flesh 
which wants to serve self, says, no way, I don't want to do that. I don't want to do that. Our flesh thinks that gratifying our own desires is how we will find life. Like Peter in this passage, we're prone to think that God's will for our lives shouldn't entail hardship or suffering. But Jesus says it's actually by denying self and dying with Jesus daily that we find true life. And, you know, I've thought a lot about this, and I I really am convinced that the only way that we'll ever gladly follow Jesus is if we treasure him over everything else. Listen for the echoes of of Jesus' words here in Mark 8, 34 to 36, in Paul's letter to the Philippians, in Philippians 3, 7 to 10. Paul says this, he says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul gladly suffered the loss of all things so that he could gain a superior treasure, Christ. He denied self and took up his cross daily so that he could follow Jesus, so that he could live like Jesus. And he discovered that that Jesus is far better than the desires of the flesh, And the pride of life. Jesus is the treasure hidden in the field that when the man found it, he covered it up and went and sold all that he had so that he could go and buy that field. When you discover that Jesus is greater than anything, your career, your plans, your possessions, your reputation, then you will gladly suffer the loss of anything so that you can gain him. You will share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And as self dies in us, Christ will live through us. He will be glorified and evident in our lives as we bear his resemblance. The more more that Jared dies to himself, the the more of Christ will be seen in me by people around me. Listen to how Paul describes this again. We read this passage earlier in 2 Corinthians 4, 11 and 12. It's one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. He says, We are always carrying in the body the death of Jesus. We're taking up our cross, denying ourselves. That's in other words. We're always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. And then he basically restates the same thing in the next verse. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake so that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. Is that not what Christ did? Death was at work in him on the cross so that life could be at work in us. And as his followers were called to go and to do the same. Paul and and his co-laborers were enduring the death of exhaustion and living under the constant threats and imprisonment and harassment for Jesus' sake. And none of those things were enjoyable, of course. They were painful, 
But as they were daily given over to death for Jesus' sake, they were able to demonstrate the love of Jesus in a tangible way to the Corinthians. The the Corinthians were able to see a visual picture of the selfless love of Christ in Paul and his team. They were like walking illustrations of Christ to the church in Corinth. And the Corinthians were also recipients of the love of Christ through Paul. Because the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, dwells in Christians and wants to minister to other people through us. But self has to die for that to happen. And for Paul, this was a a happy exchange because as he suffered with Jesus, he was was only getting more of what his heart longed for the most. He drew nearer to Jesus in his sufferings. He became more dependent on Jesus, and he was becoming more like Jesus. He received new spiritual life even as he suffered physically, and that new spiritual life is just a foretaste of the bodily resurrection that's coming for us as well. Even our physical suffering is temporary as followers of Christ. At the end of this chapter, at the end of 2 Corinthians 4, Paul says this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we deny self and take up our cross to follow Jesus, allowing Christ to live through us, it will be evident in our lives and it will bring new life to ourselves and to those around us. That's what normal Christianity looks like. That's what you and I are called to. Let me ask you a question. Are there areas of your life where you've been unwilling to die to self so that you can start living like Jesus? Are there areas of your life where you've been unwilling to die to self so that you can start living like Jesus? Let me close by helping you think through a few ways this might be applicable to your life. Perhaps God is calling you to get serious about committing to a church family. Maybe this one, maybe another one. That may mean taking the next step of becoming a covenant member of the church. My friend Thomas, who you saw in the video earlier, he calls it bending your life around the local church. Don't be selfish with your schedule. Instead, give of your time and of your gifts to serve the body of Christ. And yes, some things in your life may have to die for that to happen. Some things you like may have to die. But if you were a follower of Jesus, then self is not on the throne anymore. Jesus is, and Jesus happens to really love his bride, the church. And Jesus' bride, Jesus' body is more important than our hobbies or our promotions or our schedules. And can I just tell you that it's such a blessing to jump into fellowshipping with the church with both feet. It's life-giving. And you'll discover that the rest of the members of the body will serve you like Christ serves as well. Perhaps God is calling you to start sharing the gospel with your neighbors or your coworkers or your family. It's no coincidence that uh, in verse 38 here in our passage, Jesus uh, connects evangelism to denying ourselves and taking up our cross. He says, whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. That's because Jesus knows and understands that when we publicly identify ourselves with him, we're inviting scorn upon ourselves. 
So one of the easiest ways that you can avoid suffering for Jesus is just to keep your mouth shut about the gospel. If you just don't talk about it and you don't share it with people, you can avoid the cross. But you can't be a Christian and avoid the cross. You can't. It's, it's going to cost you possibly social standing at your workplace or in the neighborhood, or maybe it'll just cost you an awkward conversation. I'm a, I don't like awkward conversations either. Still don't. Been having them for 12 years, still don't like them. But the soul of a lost person is far more precious than our egos and our comfort. Is it not? As we die to the selfish desire to be liked by sharing the gospel... By God's grace, new spiritual life will be produced in us and in others around us. So like Paul, death is at work in us as we share the gospel and life in them. Death in us, life in them. Death in us, life in them. Another uh, way that uh, you could uh, do this is by fostering or adopting children. Opening up your home to foster or adopt will inconvenience your life in a massive way. It's like, it's, it, it's like throwing a grenade into your, your house, your schedule, your finances, your emotions. Like it really does alter and change everything. But there are few things more Jesus-like than giving up your own comfort to provide a home for a child that you had no obligation to help in the first place. They weren't your child, weren't your responsibility. You didn't have to, but you chose to. Is that not what Christ did for us? God had no obligation to save us. He would have been perfectly just to condemn us in our sin, but because of the great love that he had, because he is a good and merciful God, he left heaven and came to earth and suffered with us and for us so that he could adopt us into his family. And when we foster and adopt, we get to, to present a visible picture of the gospel to a watching world around us. What kind of a testament would it be if our churches were filled with families who were fostering and adopting, who were denying themselves so that they could take up their cross and follow Jesus, who were, who were sacrificing their finances and sacrificing their comfort and sacrificing whatever it takes to sacrifice to make room for the least of these in their lives. And I'm not using this as an illustration, by the way, to talk about how awesome I am because I want to tell you, if anything will expose just how terrible of a sinner you are, it's adopting children and children in general, right? I mean, like when we have kids, if you're a parent, you understand. Children really expose just how sinful we are, right? It's hard to be a parent. <laughs> but we're not called to live cushy, easy lives. We're called to do hard things for the glory of God as followers of Jesus. Lastly, God may be calling you to, to be a part of a church planting team or maybe even to plant a church. What if you based your next move or your career decision on not on what's going to, you know, what, what your personal preference be, what part of the country you'd like to live, what's going to be most comfortable, where the best school systems are, whatever. What if instead you based it on how you could have the greatest gospel impact? What if that was the primary filter through which you were making your decisions? God may be calling you to move to a city where you can join a church planting team and use your gifts to help start a new church in an area of need. Many of you are military families. How are you thinking about life after the military? How are you thinking about a, a second career? God may be calling you to devote some of your... Sorry. 
That happens like every time I preach at Pillar DC too. At some point, Siri starts talking to me on my watch. I'm sorry. God may be even calling some of you to devote your second career to gospel ministry. Don't cling to your plan for your life. Lose it for Jesus' sake. Put everything on the table and be willing to follow Jesus wherever he leads. You, you guys yourselves are, are right now in the early stages of beginning to plan to plant a church in Norfolk. Perhaps God's calling you to go and to be a part of that church planting team to help see a new gospel work. I've heard rumors that there's a new church plant starting in San Antonio, Texas soon. All jokes aside, per, perhaps God is calling you to come with us to San Antonio and to help us start this new church. We need people who will move their lives and get jobs in San Antonio for the glory of God and be a part of this missionary team so that we can see a healthy church planted, not only in San Antonio, but in military communities across the state of Texas. If you think God may be calling you to do that, come and talk to me after the service. I'm going to be back there at that back table with my wife, Jen, and with Andrew and Laura. Uh, Andrew is going to be uh, co-planting with me, and we'd love to talk to you about that. And by the way, even if not, God's not calling you to go, he is uh, calling you to help hold the rope. And so one of the ways that you guys can partner is by praying for us. Um, we're going to have prayer cards back there too. We would love it if you would come and, uh, and take some prayer cards so that, so that you can pray with us and for us. And we also need people who will partner with us financially because planting churches cost money. And so we're really grateful that Pillar, D Pillar Dumfries as a church is going to be supporting us. We also need individuals. So if God may be calling you to give above and beyond your tithes and offerings to help us in that area. Come and talk to us if you feel that the Lord is impressing that upon your heart. Here, the bottom line, guys, is that Christians are called to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection and to become like Jesus in his death and resurrection. And I do want to emphasize that you and I are going to fail at this, okay? I, the purpose of this message is not to load you with guilt about how terribly you've, you've been at taking up your cross and following Jesus. Trust me, I fail at it every single day. I, I constantly bemoan the fact that I don't um, serve my king in the way that he is worthy of being served on a day-to-day -day basis because he's far more worthy of anything we could possibly give him. Is he not? He's worthy of everything. We fall short of every day. That's why it's so important not to lose sight of the context of Christ's cross, okay? The cross of Christ comes first. We take up our cross because Jesus took up his first. We love because he first loved us. So we don't take up our cross to earn God's love or to earn his respect or to earn his favor. We take up our cross because Jesus is better than anything this world has to offer. And he's already loved us. I'm going to close in prayer. The worship team can come up as I do. Um, and perhaps during the closing song, uh, as we're singing, uh, if you know that God's been, that you've been kind of uh, living a lukewarm, nominal Christian life, and that, like Peter, you've been confessing, yeah, I, Jesus is my Savior, Jesus is my Messiah, but you haven't ever taken up your cross to follow him, I want to encourage you to just confess that before the Lord this morning in prayer. You can do that right where you're standing, right where you're sitting. And let me also urge you afterwards, go talk to one of your elders. Go talk to one of your pastors. Find one of them. And talk to them about that. Maybe you need to get discipled. Maybe you want to take the next steps on joining the church. They can help you do that. Let's pray, and then we'll sing. God, I thank you so much for your word. 
Um, God, you are so good to us. You did not leave us in our sin, but um, you, you came and you rescued us, Jesus. You came not to be served, but to serve and to give your life as a ransom for us. And we just praise you and we worship you this morning. Thank you, God, that you've reconciled us and that we have a relationship with you and that you've given us life. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us day by day to, to deny ourselves and to take up our cross and to follow you. Lord, we love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.